0: Good morning. This morning we will be reading Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So if we haven't met yet, I'm I'm Evan, one of the pastors here. And uh, you have joined us uh, at the beginning of a series in the book of Psalms. And we're calling this series uh, Soul Food because we're, we're going off the idea that the soul that feeds off of these psalms will begin to feel its effects. And we absolutely believe that. So I invite you to take a copy of scriptures, if you have it, and turn kind of right smack in the middle uh, to find psalms or to turn there in your device so that you can, you can follow along. Uh, the message today is entitled, Calming a Stormy Soul. I, I recall an occupational hazard, I guess we could call it, of, of uh, being a parent of young kids. And uh, it happens during bath time. So if you've ever put a child in a nice full bath, and uh, they're just enjoying the pleasures of this, this bath, and they're on their stomachs, and they begin like sliding forward and sliding back, the water begins to... The physics start moving with it, and the child is just delighted because it feels good to just kind of be moved back and forth with water. But what the child doesn't realize, and what the parent who may have stepped out for a second doesn't realize is that when they step back in, there's going to come a point where there's a tidal wave, and uh, the, the parent hears the shrieks of delight, and they walk in right as it's going over the lip, and uh, your bathroom floor is flooded. Um, you know, there's kind of a similar movement in this psalm. In the first couple of verses, you're going to start with some really, really high anxiety, where the psalmist is is calling out the phrase "How long?" calls it out four times. The second movement of the psalm, so I, so that is like the bathwater; it's spilling over. I, I mean, it is it is a mess. the The waves are high. The second movement is the psalmist beginning to convert that to prayer, and so. Things are still pretty dire, but starts to settle down just a bit. And in the final two verses, we're going to see uh, a praise where the psalmist's soul is calm. And uh, if, if the wiggly kid will lit it, it can, it can calm down. So in this psalm, we're going to observe a couple of different expressions of this movement from the high anxiety to the calmness of the soul, a movement from anxiety to trust. Starting in verses 1 and 2. We're going to see an expression of anxiety. And let's read it together. How long, excuse me, I'm going to read it. I I keep saying that. People think they're supposed to read it out loud. Try not to do that. I'm going to read this. How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The repetition of these how long" show really high emotion and frustration. The anxiety is going to arise from a couple different experiences. And, I, and I'm always amazed when you really get into God's word how much you see, like it speaks to the human experience. So we're going to see in these how longs an expression of different experiences that are going to bring anxiety in our souls. And the first is the experience of, you could call it spiritual desertion, a feeling of spiritual exertion. The first two how longs have to do with, with this feeling that God has somehow left them. Now you say, I, I thought God never leaves. He doesn't. He's always there. But the person who prays this is experiencing the horrible thought that maybe the silence that they are feeling, maybe God's failure to move on their behalf, indicates that that their prayers are not being answered, that that God has finally turned his back on them. And, And that is a horrible, horrible feeling that maybe God's face is not toward me. Well, notice the phrase there, how long will you hide your face from me? Hiding one's face is a, is a common biblical expression for when favor is, is with, removed from something. And, and the phrase appears a lot in Scripture. Sometimes it explains why people's prayers are not being answered. And so God has hid his face, so the prayer is not being answered. There are other times where the people will feel disgraced and scattered, and frightened, and exiled, exile, and the reason is because God is not pouring his spirit out, God is hiding his face. We see that in Ezekiel. Hiding God's face is even the reason why animals, as in the animal kingdom, uh, get spooked and die. I'm going to put that verse up because it's a fascinating one. Psalm 104 says, when you hide your face, they're dismayed. So you see the link between God hiding his face and dismay in somebody's spirit. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. Now, the hiding of God's face is the opposite of that blessing that we often pray in benediction, and we pray it over our kids here as well. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. So the opposite of hiding face is having God shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. And so if a face is not shining on you, then it's hidden. And it means that God's favor feels like it's been withdrawn from you. And your prosperity doesn't happen. And your peace fails. The one who's praying this feels and fears that this might be the case. Or else, why else would God be giving us this prolonged pain? And so the first experience in the human experience that that causes anxiety is this feeling of abandonment from God. A second experience is the experience of indecision and uncertainty. You see this in the phrase, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You know, it kind of makes sense that if you feel like you're kind of on your own, that God's not working for you, what do you do next? Well, you begin to to debate within yourself. You try to figure things out to come up with solutions. And uh, thus begins what some people call spinning. Have you ever done that? You know, where you're just like, you're, you're in your head, bringing up situation after situation, only to knock it down and move to the next one. Uh, you're talking to yourself about yourself. You're, you're, you're mulling over, looking for solutions. The language tells us what this looks like. Notice it says that I take counsel in my soul. In other words, I'm placing plans. I'm, I'm proposing plan after plan after plan, only to knock it down at the end. This happens in our soul. So this is an interior conversation. You know, it, it, depending on how you're wired, you may be a person that's just like, man, you don't, you're not introspective at all. Well, well you're blessed. There are others of us that are wired with like, it, it, it may sound like an individual voice. It's almost like a parent that, that is in there always pointing out what you did. Like you did this wrong. That's not right. That's not right. And, and there's this voice that's lecturing you constantly. Now, some of you guys, like you're saying like, wow, if you just have one voice, you're lucky. You know, I've got a committee in me. I mean, it it comes up from every end. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And and if you live that way, you know how, how exhausting it is. Notice that the psalmist says, it happens all the day. In other words, you're camped out there. Now, all of us live in anxiety from time to time, but some people, like they are parked there all the time. And if that is your experience, you know how exhausting it is. And so you've got the experience of spiritual desertion. You've got this experience of of inner indecision and debate that's just exhausting you. But you also have maybe a more external experience, the experience of the constant presence of evil. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So this one's actually kind of lesser than the other two, just because of the way that it's phrased. But, but the enemy is not a primary concern, but they're always there waiting for you. And for David, this may have been Saul hunting him. If you had asked David at any time, like, hey, David, how's that running for your life thing going, you know, with, with Saul? Are you, are you winning? And David would be like, no, I'm on the ropes. He's exalting over me. Everything is going wrong. You know, even, even David despaired under those circumstances. If you put people in the pressure cooker long enough so they feel away from God, they're, 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 they're debating within themselves and like mulling over plans and the enemies are there waiting to get them, sometimes you get to this point of dismay. David got there. First Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me then I should escape to the land of the Philistines, the enemies of God. Then Saul will despair of trying to seek me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. You know, I just note that phrase, there's nothing better. Wow, that's the language of a person who has, has said, I have proposed every possible plan in my mind, and I'm going to choose the least worst of them. I, I, just, I just need some relief And so so you see all of this, this anxiety in David's soul. You see the inner workings of his mind. You see that he feels cornered by his enemy. And even David submitted to dismay and anxiety. So in these first couple of verses, we see an expression of anxiety. I want to give you just a, a few points of application here. First of all, I would like to note that expressing your anxiety or expressing your dismay is not unbelief. It's actually an act of faith. Even if you're hyperventilating in your spirit, kind of like that sloshing bathwater, your floor is being flooded. Everything is stormy in your soul, but you have to notice that your floor is being flooded before you can do anything about it. So to say to God, how long am I going to stay in this situation is not an act of unbelief. It's an act of faith. But let me note also, you can't stop there. So even though it's not an act of unbelief, it's not the place that you want to stay. Like you cannot be that stormy and ragey without things happening in your heart. And so you can't stay there, but many of us try to. Sometimes we begin to mistake worrying for praying. You ever done that? Uh, now, now they feel akin to each other. Sometimes, like we're supposed to bring our, our request before God, but you find out that I'm not actually bringing it before God. I'm just, I'm just now laying them all out. Uh, sometimes we think that that spinning is praying or that it's planning. Well, spinning is not planning. It's just letting yourself go. It's letting the bathwater go all over the place. So it can't stop there. Another point of application. Uh, there's an old commentator named Matthew Henry. Uh, he's public domain. You can just search and download everything. Uh, anybody can. But Matthew Henry, he's, he's cool. He's an old Puritan, but he's got just like great applications sometime. And one of the things he notes is that you don't have to be in this situation to benefit from this psalm. Uh, number one, if you're not in that period of, of acute anxiety, you can thank God for that. Number two, you can thank God that you're not in a place where you're feeling spiritually deserted. But number three, this helps us begin to feel with other people. So as you enter into the world of the psalmist, you say, like, this is what he's feeling. He's expressing frustration and intense emotion. Uh, And you put yourself in that psalmist's shoes. And and you become the eye of this. When you encounter somebody who is suffering, what's that going to help you do? enter into their suffering as well. Help them, love them, pity them, not in a condescending way, but in a way that says, let me come and walk with you. So while this expression of anxiety is human and it is okay, uh, you can't stay there forever. And the psalmist actually moves from this crazy anxiety, this this just just complaining to God, how long, God, to a prayer. Prayer. So the second expression here is a prayer, and we see this movement in verses 3 and 4. I want you to note the demands that he makes of God. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Okay, so there are three demands there. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Consider me. You remember he felt that God had hid his face? This is in direct response to that. He is saying, he's saying, God, look, look at me. Give me your eyes. Take notice of me. Now, do you think that's passionate and bold? It is, but it's appropriate. And one of the reasons we read the Psalms is because it tells us what is appropriate for us in our situation. He says, consider me, notice me, also answer me. Now, consider and answer are very, very closely tied. In fact, they're actually kind of like one word, answer lookingly. In other words, God, answer me with your look. All I need is you to look at me. So the faith of the one who prays this is that if God would just turn his attention to me, then my anxiety would dissipate, my enemies would fail, and everything would be okay praise, give me light, light up my eyes. If God would just answer me with a look, the change would be immediate. The consequence of God looking at us means that the sparkle would come back in my eyes. And I'm not even talking about just spiritual. I'm talking about physical here. Uh, I'll have vitality. Uh, the very phrase here is is used in the verse I put on the screen here. With, with Jonathan, who was David's very, very close friend. So the situation is that King Saul, Dave, Jonathan's father and David's enemy, had um, told his troops in a very foolish promise, nobody gets to eat until the enemy is routed. And so we'll pick it up there. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with that oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in some honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth And his eyes became bright. So you see, if God gives you light, then that means he's actually going to give you energy and vitality. Have have you ever been there? Have you ever seen somebody that the light has gone out of their eyes where it is clear, like they are, are beat? Perhaps you have been there. What they need is the glance of God. They need his light and his vitality to come back into their life. And, and I'm not really sure that I, I believe this completely. That when I'm feeling that way, that what I need is the glance of God. If I did believe that, my interior monologue would be very different. If I found myself with a place where the bathwater is sloshing all over the floor, I'm anxious and I'm like, God, what's going on? Why won't you answer me? Then if I really believe that what I needed was his face, Then my next prayer, of course, would be, God, I need you, please. And I wouldn't stop saying it until I had it, until I had his smile. Now, it occurs to me that this is not incompatible with strategies like mindfulness. You know, you do what you need to to get a grip. It may mean that you need to de-stress with the four corners breathing or to do a body map where you're thinking through uh, just being present. It may be that you need help with medicine that brings you down to a place that you can do this. But I, I do have a question. After you do these strategies, your mind can't just remain blank. What's it going to move to? Well, it can move to prayer. What you begin to visualize could even be this, like let me see the smile of the face of God. Let me imagine myself in, even in Jesus' shoes where he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That was very special to Jesus, but we are in Christ. You are his daughter and his Son, and he is well pleased that you are on this earth, and you visualize that. This is the prayer of a person. So we can both recognize that we are souls that inhabit bodies and be intensely spiritual. They're not not contradictory. So, we see this intense expression of anxiety in one and two channeled into this prayer. But, and this is a positive development, but the stakes are still really high for this person who's praying. And that you kind of move into this second set of threes where he says, Lest, lest these things happen to me, lest I sleep the sleep of death. You know, we, we realize that if God doesn't answer with a look, if he doesn't give me back my vitality, if he doesn't restore my faith, then it's possible that I could die as a result of God's displeasure. Now, I don't think David feared death. You remember that whole Goliath thing. He was, he was a warrior. He knew that death was a possibility. What David feared was dying while under the displeasure of God. He knew that if David wouldn't look at him, then Saul was going to get him. And in that passage we read a little bit earlier, he was almost to that point. He was like, I don't have anything better to do but to go live with my enemies because Saul is about to get me. You know, there are are brothers and sisters in Christ all over this world right now that live in places that that the Human Rights Commission would call countries of particular concern. And uh, these are places like China and Nigeria and Vietnam and Cuba and North Korea and Russia where there are people who could be detained, disappear, fall under house arrest, some even tortured. This is happening all over the place, and and people who are in that situation, they can pray this, God, be with me or I will sleep the sleep of death. And we should be praying for them as well if we're not in that situation. But most commentators also agree this, that you don't have to be in danger of literal death in order to be at this point. Because this can also be symbolic for very dark depression and dread even if it doesn't lead to death. I think what's fascinating is that Jesus experienced both. You may may remember where he, he experienced death under the displeasure of God for us. And he also experienced sorrow. You remember in the garden, he said to this, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled and said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. You know, there is a sorrow that is so deep that it feels akin to death. In fact, the person would almost feel that death would be a relief. Now, personally, I have not experienced a sorrow that feels like that, but I know that there are some of you who have. And, and it's almost like, I, I don't care. It could go ahead and take me. That is where you're at. And so you can pray this, God, Please shine on me lest I sleep the sleep of death. So you read something like this and you say, this doesn't feel like an exaggeration at all. That's what it feels like. But even if it doesn't lead to death, there's a chance, the psalmist says, that the enemy wins. Someone put it that that David feared that he would let his side down, that he's been shaken. You know, when when you've been shaken, it means you have no spiritual reserves left that the only thing between you and the only thing left to you is to deny God and to damage his name. And so kind of embedded in this list of bad results that the psalmist says, I don't want these to happen, is an appeal to God to protect his name. He's saying, if you don't look at me and answer me, I may die under your apparent displeasure. My enemies, your enemies may rejoice or I may deny your name. Some of you are aware of prominent Um, deconstruction stories. You think of, say, a a preacher like Josh Harris or Abraham Piper or uh, YouTubers, Rhett and Link. I mean, you don't have to look very, very far until you find deconstruction stories. Now, you could argue that what happened is that they slipped. They didn't find the glance of grace that they sought, and some of them did seek it. But they slipped, and they gave the enemy a chance to rejoice and so this expression of prayer realizes that. It realizes that there are high, high, high stakes in the fight for faith. And so if the expression of anxiety, the how longs, is like storminess, and then you move to this prayer that still has very high stakes, but it's a little bit calmer, hopefully you're going to migrate to this final step, which is where the fight really happens. This is the fight for faith. It's on. It's on. Verses 5 and 6. Here we have an expression of trust. There's a declaration, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully for me. Now, that may look a little bit weird on your screen because I just kind of want you you to see what's going on here. So the psalmist makes this declaration, I will trust in your steadfast love. And then there's the way that Hebrew poetry works is that it doesn't rhyme words. It rhymes concepts. And so the two concepts that are kind of like parallel to each other is my heart shall rejoice and I will sing to the Lord. And the other concept is in your salvation because he's dealt bountifully with me. So there's a declaration and then two praises, expressions of trust. Yo, know, what I love about this so much is the first word it's a conjunction. But, or maybe your translation even says and. What this points out is that nothing really has changed. The psalmist makes this determination to trust in the steadfast love of God when all the other stuff has not changed yet. So he's saying, even though this, 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 and this, and I will trust in the Lord. He's determined to take that stance. And it's so important. You can't wait for the calm before you begin to trust. You have to trust in advance. What is he trusting in? Steadfast love. Now, steadfast love is such an important concept in Scripture that I think we want to take just a second to get clear on what it is. So, it, you know, if we're going to express to trust God is to bank on his steadfast love, let's, let's be clear on it, okay? Steadfast love is the, one of the, the most important attributes of God in all of Scripture. So much so that when Moses asks to see God and to know God, God passes in front of him in Exodus 34. And one of the things he lists is this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you say, God, who are you? And one of the first things he mentions is, I am a God of steadfast love. Now, this is very, very closely linked to uh, another term in Scripture called the covenant. Now, covenant is, is a binding, binding agreement between two parties, usually made by a stronger party, where both must be loyal to each other. Steadfast love is what makes God loyal. So when God enters into a covenant with somebody, because of his steadfast love, this is why you can guarantee that he is going to be loyal. What's important about covenant love is that it always has a blessing for those who are loyal and a curse for those who are not Know therefore that the Lord your God is Lord God, the faithful God that keeps covenant and steadfast love, okay, there it is, with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So you notice that there is some conditions to this. Obedience. And, and I wonder if that's what the psalmist is feeling. Maybe he wonders if he's forfeited his loyalty to God. And it's actually God's steadfast love that is bringing the curses on him. And so he's not doubting whether God is being loyal. He's saying, maybe, maybe I've been disloyal, and that's what's plaguing him. But you say, I've always heard this is like steadfast love is unconditional. Well, there's another type of love in the Old Testament that sinks very, very closely to grace and unconditional love. Steadfast love is something different. And here's the difference. It's this other kind of love, this unconditional love that causes God to enter into a covenant with somebody in the first place. You didn't do anything. He says that about Israel. He said, like, you weren't the biggest or the best or the wisest. He said, but I loved you. He entered into them unconditionally. But then it's his steadfast love that keeps it um, going. One commentator says, it's the love, it's the unconditional love that launches a marriage but it's steadfast love that makes it go of it. Well, I think, I think you know that. Like, nobody forced you to marry your spouse. You did it because you love them. But, you know, once the initial, you know, infatuation goes, and, and, and actually infatuation can keep on. That's a wonderful thing. But after that initial unconditional thing, we didn't have to marry each other. What makes the marriage go? It's going to be a settled, steadfast loyalty to your marriage covenant. Now, believers, we didn't get this firsthand. This is an inherited love that we have through the work of Jesus. You know, We were outside that covenant, but, but he brought us into a covenant through his blood. And that's why when we take communion, every time we say this, this is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus brought us into this new covenant, and its base is forgiveness. And the beautiful thing about this covenant is that it is entirely dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, that blessing and that curse, you're never going to face the curse because who took it? Jesus took the curse for us. And so when we totally rely on him, we have entered into this covenant. We will receive all the blessing, and he is the one who is, as we just sang, holding us fast. And so we can truly say, believer, I have trusted in your steadfast love. The psalmist has reached a conclusion. He says, you know what? I have not turned my back on God. I've not posted my deconversion story yet, my deconstruction story. I have not slipped. Saul has not killed me yet. No, I am going to bank on the steadfast love of God. And God is obligated, yes, obligated, to show loyalty and steadfast love to the speaker. And so because of that declaration come the expressions of trust. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing to the Lord in your salvation because he's dealt bountifully with me. You know, uh, one commentator noted this, an old commentator, He he said, this steadfast love, this declaration is a shield by which David fights off the terrors that were assailing him. And and so when we're feeling this way and our souls are rattled, our souls are stormy, our shield to fight the distress is the steadfast love of God. I notice the future nature of this. I shall rejoice and I will sing. It shows that it hasn't happened yet. We have to trust through the anxiety. So, in this psalm, we've got these three expressions that we've seen. Anxiety, prayer, and then trust. So in closing, I, I would like to just talk to you for a second about three different types of people who may be listening today. All right, so first of all, if you're a person who feels this acutely, as in like you would say, I have clinical depression, clinical anxiety. I mean, this is my reality. First of all, what I want you to hear is that this psalm takes your experience deadly seriously. It does not minimize it. This is not the DSM-5. It doesn't claim to be. But I think as you look at it, you'll realize that it takes the human experience very, very seriously. And part of the common grace is that when the bathwater is like coming over the lip, I mean, your soul is out of control, uh, that common grace may be that there is help for you. It may be psychiatric help. It may be psychological help. It may be methods and ways and strategies that help you get a grip on your soul so you can even start to engage your mind. Part of being souls that are in bodies means that that we're aware of the effects that our physical bodies have on our souls. But I don't want you to hear either that this has nothing to do with your pain. I don't want to hear the words, "I, I, I need help, I don't want verses. No, because here's the deal. Symptoms. We deal with the symptoms. And, and sometimes strategies and different things can help you deal with the symptoms. But where are they flowing from? This speaks to the experiences where all of these anxieties and dismay come from. And God is never out of that picture. He is the God who made your soul and made your body and is going to enter into you with whatever you're going through. So it has much to do with it. Second, there may be some here who have no confidence that the steadfast love of God is something they can claim because you've not fully relied upon the blood of the covenant through the work that Jesus Christ did. And for you, I would say this, the storm that is in your soul, that anxiety is actually God's mercy. He is calling you to find refuge in him. He's calling you to find a shield from your distresses. And for you, those words, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, could actually be your salvation prayer, where you call out today and say, God, I have trusted in the love that you have done. Now, you may say, like, this is new to me. I don't know the whole story. I need a bigger picture. And that's great. Let me just encourage you to start to inquire about that. And and honestly, if we can be of any help to you in that search, in that journey... Um, please, nothing would delight us more than to speak with you. I'll, I mean, I'll even hang out here afterwards and with an open Bible, we could talk about God's plan and you could pray that prayer where you come to trust the steadfast love of God. Finally, if you're out here and you're like, yeah, I live a fairly normal life. Yeah, I've got occasional anxiety and sometimes I get discouraged, uh, but that doesn't you know, feel where I'm at constantly. Uh, then let me just bring back to mind old Matthew Henry and just realize, like, you don't have to be in that situation to benefit from it. You can be very thankful for God. You can ask him to protect you, help you be loyal, and also be somebody who walks with other people. Come alongside and pray with them. But also, remember, there will come a time where you and I will need to sing this quiet little psalm to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for David and how he shared his experience with us today. Lord, I pray that this would become a psalm that is dear to us. Lord, I pray that we would come to you, that we would find that it would calm our souls. Father, I pray that we would take refuge in the covenant that is sealed in the blood of Christ. Thank you that we will not have to face your judgment or face your curse because he took it all for us. Lord, I pray that we begin to live into that reality, live into that truth. God, I pray today for those who may be feeling acute anxiety or depression. Oh, Father, I pray that you would shine light onto them or give them vitality, save them. or I pray that they would trust you now even through what they're going through. Lord, I do pray if there is somebody today who do not feel like they can claim the steadfast love of, your, of you, I pray that today would be the day that they do that and that they would rejoice and they would have this shield to fight the distress. So God, we pray you would use your word in a, in a special way in each of our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.